If you have your Bible, turn to um, the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark. Gospel according to Mark. And so um, we are beginning our series in the Gospel of Mark. And that sounds much better. Yeah. Thank you, Amos. Amos, I love it. Um, Yeah, so we're beginning our series in the book of Mark. And this Sunday, today, we're going to be looking at verses 1. Um, you know, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And so I'm going to read, and as I read, do follow along with me. And I'm reading from the ESV. All right. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way The Lord make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts. And wild. Is that how you pronounce it? Locusts or locusts? Locusts. Locusts. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Maybe I should have done my research before I came. All right, verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, pray with me. Father, it's all about Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus is what makes us whole. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, the death, um, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is what has enabled us um, to gather here. It's amazing. I'm always amazed by how many of us were all from different backgrounds in different places. And yet we are here this morning united as one because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so as we begin this series in Mark, may you help us not only understand, but help us to know Jesus more. And as we know Jesus more, may we have this unwavering desire for his life to be lived in us and through us. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thankfully, um, I've never been in a fire. Okay, the closest I got to being in a fire was recently when my family and I were doing a barbecue at our home. All right? And I had been doing my thing on my grill. You know, dads and men, we just love our grilling and doing my thing, enjoying myself, cooking up some chicken. Um, Wife is smelling it. Whole neighborhood is smelling it. Everything's smelling good. Everything's looking good. Nothing burnt, nothing charred, nothing like that. Just amazing barbecue. I'm done. Take the meat off. I go and place it in the kitchen. My wife begins to prepare the table. Um, I go to my grill just to like kind of, you know, scrape off some of it, you know, you do, we do that, okay? Um, um, and so that happens, I go to sit to eat and I hear some burning noise and I'm like, what is happening? I walk out um, and I see 
um, our fence, which is kind of close to where my grill is, right, it's on fire, and it's burning. And if you've ever seen a fire uh, at that particular, you know, you just panic. You just don't know what to do. And the first thing I thought to do was not to get my hose and turn on the water, but run in the kitchen and get a saucepan, right, weird, and start filling it up with water so I can go outside. And I know that because afterwards, I was like, why didn't I just grab the hose? But luckily, our neighbors running because they saw the smoke right up in the air, and some of the young guys helped. How that had started was when I was um, beginning my, um, uh, my barbecue, I had, um, I had some charcoal that wasn't really burning and setting a light. And so what I did was I grabbed it out of the pile and I put it to the side, right, um, so that I could smash it up. And I scraped the remaining, the, the smaller pieces, and put it back in the grill. And what I didn't know was I'd left some little pieces of charcoal on the floor. And those pieces just began to burn and burn and burn and then set my fence alight, okay? That was the closest thing I got to a fire. And I tell everyone now, it was menacing. Seeing a fire get to that level when it gets going, it's scary. And some of you, as I'm speaking now, you're probably, you know, memories are coming back of when you've been in a fire. I don't know, but it's a scary thing. And the fire wasn't even that big. Okay? It wasn't even that big. In life, throughout life, we've heard on the news, we've heard from people that, you know, people have been in fires, right? And it's a crazy thing, you know, London burnt down uh, many years ago, and I'm sure that experience for a lot of the Londoners was insane. And if fire gets going, it's a menacing thing. It's crazy. But in the year AD 64, okay, a large part of a particular city was set alight. It was the city of Rome, right, which was the heart of the Roman Empire, um, and 80% of the city was devastated by fire. At the time, um, the Emperor Nero, who is perhaps the most infamous of all Roman emperors, was in power. And what he did was he needed someone to blame for it because they couldn't figure out who had caused the fire in the first place. And so what he did was, I'm going to blame Christians. I'm going to blame Christians for the fire that devastated and nearly destroyed um, Rome. He then ordered his military personnel to search the city and capture every Christian um, they could find. So followers of Jesus then became subject to ill treatment in Rome at the time. In public displays of persecution, Christians were dipped in gasoline and set on fire. Also, what had happened was Christians were clothed in skins of wild animals so that they could be attacked by wild dogs. And, and Christians were also forced into the Colosseum as food for lions. And all of this was entertainment for Roman citizens. It was around the year AD 65 in the immediate aftermath of the great fire that the first written record of the life of Jesus Christ was published. And this is it, the Gospel of Mark. The early recipients 
of this account were Christians suffering persecution in Rome. And through this written account, they were reminded of who Jesus was and how they're to be committed to him even under intense persecution. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible all about the life and times of Jesus. It is one of the first accounts dedicated to the life of Jesus. The author is a scribe named Mark, also known as John Mark. He was an assistant of Paul and Barnabas early in their missionary journeys. It was one Right? This, this gospel, Mark, is one of four books dedicated just to the life of Jesus. The other three, known as the gospels, according to Matthew, Luke, and John. And they all aim to communicate what? They all aim to communicate who Jesus was and what he did. And guess what? As you read, and most of you are familiar with the gospels, they're all different. They all have a different emphasis. Okay? Jeremy Treat, who was my pastor during my time in L.A., puts it this way. Puts it brilliantly. He says, the gospel writers are painting portraits of Jesus with each emphasizing different aspects of his identity and his mission. Right? So Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. So Matthew as a gospel focuses on Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Luke was written to non-Jews, that is Gentiles, Right? And which aims that Luke aims to show that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And John, which is written to the Greek community, aims to make clear to them that Jesus is the divine word who holds all things together. And Mark, which is the first of all four Gospels, right? It's the shortest in length, it's fast paced. And we know that to be true because last week we read the first eight chapters of Mark and it was an awesome experience. It's fast-paced. And what's interesting about it is filled with little teaching um, that Jesus taught and lots of action. And so as you read, you'll notice the word immediately, right? Or in some translations, it says straight away. And this word appears um, 42 times. You see it all the time. Immediately, Jesus said this. Immediately, Jesus went here. Immediately, Jesus did this. It's over and over again. As you read Mark, it has a sense of urgency. Mark has put together a life-changing book about the person and work of Jesus and the call for us to follow him. Jesus does not, listen carefully, does not only save us from our sins, he makes us his followers. And it is my hope that as we dedicate our Sunday gatherings and midweek small groups, studying the life of Jesus in the book of Mark, we'll not only know Jesus more, right? We want to know Jesus more, but we will become dedicated to him, and as we're dedicated to him, we'll witness again and again his life lived in us and through our life. With that said, let's look at the very first sentence of Mark's gospel. Look at it. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It says, 
The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? It's easy as Christians to read a sentence like this and quickly move from it without taking the time to consider its significance. We can be so familiar with sayings like this, it decreases in value. It does. And we, know, we all know that term, familiarity breeds what? Right? It happens all the time. I remember when my wife and I, in 2010, we arrived in um, Southern California. And as we drove out of the airport, we were wild by what? We were wild by the palm trees, right? And we were just looking up the palm trees, just amazed at how tall and how unique and different they are. The other day, I was talking to someone, and I was like, man, palm trees are so familiar to me. I just, like, don't even notice them no more. Right? And I'm sure that is most of your experience. And this is what we kind of do with um, sentences like this and verses like this. They become so familiar to us, we actually don't take the time to reflect on them and consider how impactful they should be in our life. This very first sentence of Mark's gospel is more than an introductory statement. It's a statement that communicates the theme for the entire book. Right from the beginning, this is what Mark is saying. Hey, guys, I'm putting all of my cards on the table. I'm not trying to be all mysterious about this book and about where I'm going. No, I want to make it crystal clear that this book, this document you're holding, and we're going to be studying right here, is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To a Jew, okay, if you were to speak to a devout Jew today, right, and read them that passage and explain to them what it means, right, this statement will be highly controversial. Most devout Jews disagree with the meaning of this statement. And if understood properly, Right? The majority of your friends, the people you work with, and the people you live near would also disagree with this statement, if understood. Why is that? This is why. The word Christ here is not Jesus' last name. It's a title like president or prime minister. It's the title for the long-awaited king of Israel. The Old Testament, right, which is an amazing historical book, if you read it, contains many promises about a king, right, who would one day arrive and have victory over Israel's enemies, ushering in a new age of peace and prosperity for the people of Israel. But Mark doesn't only identify Jesus as the Christ, right? He goes further. He also lets us know that Jesus is the Son of God. Tim Keller, famous author, rightly describes this term as an astonishingly bold term. And he goes on to say, it's, it's a claim of outright divinity, in other words, in referring to Jesus as the Son of God, this very first sentence is Mark, in Mark is saying that Jesus is God. That's mind. Think about it. Jesus, 
most people agree, most historians agree, was a real and living person, right? Every time we've, everything we've read, everything we're going to study about him, this is true uh, eyewitness accounts of this um, 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 historical figure. Right here, from the beginning, Mark is saying Jesus is not only the long-awaited Messiah and King, right, of Israel, but he's also God. He's also the Son of God. And for Mark to refer to Jesus in this way was seriously dangerous. And the reason why is uh, at the time this book was written, the Roman emperor, Nero, right, was worshipped as though he was a god. So to speak of Jesus as the Messiah and God's only true representative on earth was kind of the opinion that got you thrown into the Colosseum and to be devoured by lions. It was life-threatening to refer to Jesus as, the, God's only rep- as God in the flesh. And what's interesting is that Mark's claim that Jesus is the Christ God's only chosen king is just as controversial today as it was back then. Question. I wonder what you think. Is, in your opinion, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he God? Is he the king? Do you actually believe this? Because how you respond to this makes a whole lot of difference in your life. We're going to find that out soon. So, in this first verse of Mark, we also discover that it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? Most of you know this, but the word gospel means what? The word gospel means what? Good news. So my question to you is, what's the best news you've ever heard? What's the best news you've ever heard? Maybe it was the news that after months, many months of looking for a job, you finally received a job offer. Or maybe the best news you've ever heard was from the doctor who informed you that you have fully recovered from a life-threatening illness. I don't know, but whatever the best news you've ever heard, here in this verse, the phrase good news speaks about news that is so good, it's life-changing, and it's talking about news that is better than the best news you've ever heard. And this news, guess what? It's all about Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, who also happens to be the Son of God. From this verse, we know for sure that this book is not the gospel of how. Listen to this. It's not the gospel of how to earn God's love through religious activities. This is not the beginning of the gospel about how to improve your church attendance. This is not the beginning of the good news about how to pray 
and read your Bible more. This is not the beginning of the gospel of how to, uh, how, how to receive God's love and how, how, how to have God love you more. No, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Rico Tice, a British author and Anglican minister, says that when we look at Jesus, the guessing games about God stops. The God of the Bible is not someone we dream up and come up with based on our own imagination. No, he goes on to say, God has revealed himself to us. God has shown us what he's like by sending his son, Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, Mark tells us something that the characters in the story, like the disciples, will take time to discover. Does that make sense? In that we're reading this, right? And we understand all of this. But imagine the disciples. Imagine the people Jesus encountered. They didn't know nothing about him. And so as we read and as we study, you're going to see that people are going to take time to actually get to the point where they understand and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. From the start, we know that this is no ordinary story, but it's the true story about the king of all the earth. Mark 1.1 is an invitation to read on in order to encounter Jesus. From Mark's gospel, you will come face to face with the real Jesus. You will discover from these pages who Jesus is, why he came into the world, and what, is re- what it really means to follow him. This good news, understood and believed, will change your life forever. And it all begins with a quote from the Old Testament. Look at verses 2 and 3. Look at what he says. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Mark, the writer of this um, eyewitness account, begins his story by telling us from the Old Testament who was expected and what was meant to happen once he arrives. And what's fascinating about this promise, which is found in the Old Testament, was that it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. So, the reason why Mark includes these verses is to remind us that the coming of Jesus into the world was not something that happened randomly. In other words, Jesus' birth, right, his ministry or teaching about the kingdom of God and healing the sick and performing miracles and debating religious leaders and eventually dying and resurrecting was all God's perfect plan, which is being fulfilled with amazing accuracy what comes next what comes next after these quotes is the introduction of a fella you see it you saw it in in verse 4 and he's named John Um, he's often known as John the Baptist and the reason John enters the story at this point is because he's actually the fulfillment of verses 2 and 3 all right? And so verses 2 and 3 are talking about John the Baptist. In other words, he's that messenger. He's that voice, right, calling out in the wilderness, prepare 
the way for the Lord. John was getting people ready for the coming of Jesus. And the primary way he prepared people for the arrival of Jesus was proclaiming and practicing. Look at it in verse 4. Proclaiming and practicing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is what's happening. News about this John guy. Okay? It's Johnny. John the Baptist, has been spreading, okay, all over Judea, Jerusalem at the time. And people are saying, who is this guy? He's calling out our ways of life that are contrary to God's word. He's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to the forgiveness of sins. And when people hear about it, what they do is they're like, I want to hear this. I want to know what this is all about. Many of the residents, what happens is that they realize their need for forgiveness. And because of this, verse 5 lets us know that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Many people traveled many miles on foot so that they can meet this John the Baptist guy and hear his message and get baptized by him. And so the question is, we know a little bit about John. We know that um, um, you know, he was talked about many years before he arrived on the scene. We know what he's doing and what he's proclaiming, but who is he? Is there any more information about this guy? Look at verse 6. It describes John and his appearance. It says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts. I pronounced that right, didn't I? Good, thank you. Locusts and wild honey. Not the kind of description, be honest, you would expect. Think about it, right? This guy is chosen by God to prepare the way for the coming king. He's bold, he's radical, he's situated by the River Jordan, calling people to stop doing what they're doing and turn to God. Hundreds and possibly thousands of people are flocking to go to hear him and be baptized by him. He's the talk of the town. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody wants to see him. There's a lot of hype surrounding this man. And because of this, you would expect him to be dressed better than it's been described. You would expect him to this, be this kind of man who is sophisticated and kind of... But, you, I, I, you know, when I read it and I'm thinking through it, if this was my first time reading this, not knowing nothing about John, I would not expect him to be a shabby, okay? That's kind of wild-looking, as he's been described here. I know it's in now, this whole kind of beard thing and the kind of, like male that has this edge. I know it's kind of, I think it's in. It's the hipster kind of. No, I don't know. Anyway, but, right? Does that make sense? His appearance, if we're honest with ourselves, based on what is said about him and based on what he's doing, doesn't meet 
our expectations. God has a habit of messing with our expectations. He is constantly, constantly challenging our cultural norms and ways of thinking. Because his ways are not our ways. God is unpredictable. His plans and purposes are often uncommon. Just when we thought we've figured out how God's going to work and how he's going to move, he does something totally different. He always does. Often, God uses the most unlikely people, most of the time the people society looks down on, to do his greatest work. And John the Baptist is an example of that. And I would say, personally, in my life, I'm an example of that. And I'm sure many of you would agree that, man, like, God, like, who am I that you would call me and save me? And not only that, but you would involve me and invite me and involve me in the work and the mission you're doing. Think about it. God, the creator of the universe, has been so gracious to you. He's, through his son, he's called you. And he's using you as his instrument to bring about his purposes on this earth. So, in his shabby clothing and wild appearance, John urged um, the people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But this message was the first part of John's message. Okay, This wasn't just the whole thing. It was just the first part of John's message. The second part was all about a superior and ultimate person. Look at verses 7 and 8. Look at it with me. It says, And he, that's John, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? In ancient Israel, the most common footwear was sandals. Even the rich and the famous and the people of authority wore sandals. And guess what? This is so interesting. I love Bible history. So this is what happened. So these rich people, what happened is because people walk all the time and there's dusty roads, and when they get home, right, they want to take their sandals off. Wealthy and rich, upper-class kind of really wealthy people, they didn't even take their shoes off themselves. What they did was they hired slaves to take their shoes off of their feet. And the reason is, it was beneath their dignity to um, take off their own sandals. So for John the Baptist... To say that he's not even worthy to lower himself like a slave and untie the sandals of the one who was coming after him was him basically saying, people, this all has nothing to do with me. 
It's never been about me. Don't get excited about me. Rather, get pumped and excited about the Messiah, the one who is the Son of God. Yes, I may baptize you with water and I have you know, some kind of um, convicting words to say and all of those things. But guess what? My baptism's only by water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is saying, compare me with this guy that is coming, right? If you compare me to me, I am, I am nothing compared to the one I'm preparing you guys to encounter. John's baptism of water was a sign of being washed clean, of being cleansed, forgiveness of sins. That's what it signified. So what it means is that when an individual was lowered into the water, it was a symbol of dying to their old way of living. And when they were lifted out of the water, it was a symbol of being raised in new life. That is what it expressed and symbolized. But what John knew was that when Jesus appeared, he would offer them and us so much more. So much more. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, which is an extraordinary, right? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an extraordinary act by God that brings ordinary people like you and I into a right relationship with God. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, when you were saved... What was happening was you were being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that you, it was God's extraordinary, miraculous, supernatural act that brought you into a right relationship with God. In other words, what John means by Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus will not only provide forgiveness of sins to all those who place their trust in him, but he will also fill them with God's spirit who will radically transform their lives and empower them to live the life God has called them to live. If you're here and you know you're not the person you ought to be, let alone the person God wants you to be, this is the best and most remarkable news you can ever hear. It is good news that your sins can be forgiven and that you can be empowered by God's Spirit to live the life God requires from you. The life of John the Baptist was all about shining a spotlight on Jesus Christ. He was like a road sign, okay, pointing anyone and everyone towards Jesus. And so my question to you is, like John the Baptist, our lives should be all about Jesus. It should. We are his humble servants who exist so that his life may be lived in and through our life. And so, as a believer, why do you do what you do? Do you view yourself as a humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve and live for? Or do you live life thinking it's all about you and what you want? As a Christian, it's all about Jesus. I'm sure 
You've had the experience of walking through the downtown of a city and being offered a leaflet which you refuse or take and then ignore because you don't think it will do you any good. Well, British newspaper, haven't read it in a long time, it's called the Evening Standard, once conducted an experiment. They got a man to stand outside Oxford Circus. Oxford Circus is one of the like, most you know, busiest train stations. All right? Got to, this man to stand outside Oxford Circus Station in Central London, and what he was doing was handing out leaflets. On the leaflet was the free offer of five pounds, okay, five dollars. And for just bringing the leaflet back to the man, you would receive five pounds. Hordes of people passed him, and in three hours, only 11 came back for their five pounds. People assumed they knew what he was handing out and that it would do them no good, so they didn't bother to take it or read it. My plea is that if you're here and you're yet to dedicate and surrender your life to Jesus, my prayer, my plea, our hope is that you'll not make the same mistake with Jesus. You'll not view the claims Mark is making about Jesus as irrelevant. My hope is that you would not walk out of here and miss out on the gift of salvation and mercy and eternal life Jesus is offering. My hope is that you would wholeheartedly believe in Jesus so that through his perfect life, through his death by crucifixion and subsequent resurrection from the grave, you'll receive the gift of forgiveness and right relationship with God. The offer has been made now and the offer is always <laughs> made to you. Jesus is real. And he's not only this kind of prophet or good teacher or um, the poster boy of, um, and of social justice. No, he's more than that. He's actually God, right? And his life, he was perfect. And his death was him dying when he was on the cross. He was absorbing every um, God's wrath for every single sin and um, bad thing you've ever done. That was what Jesus was doing on that cross. And guess what? Um, the grave death couldn't hold him down. And three days later, he rose from the grave conquering Satan, right? Conquering sin, right? And conquering all of these things that we struggle with. And so Jesus is real. Jesus' death is absolutely life-changing. And if you're here and you're not yet wholeheartedly, and I'm not talking about an emotional experience, I'm talking about wholeheartedly, said Jesus. Jesus, I want you to be my king because that's who he is. He is king. 
Jesus, I want you to be the king of my life, and I want to live for you. For those who are Christians, lifelong learners of Jesus, notice again, okay, quickly before we close, what it says in verse 1. It says, the beginning, okay, let's not miss out, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the beginning. This statement is amazing. It means that everything we're going to read and study from Mark about Jesus and all he did was just the beginning. And the reason this is awesome is because the story is still going. The Jesus we're going to study in depth from the book of Mark is still on mission. He's still saving the lost. He's still bringing comfort to the brokenhearted. He's still bringing hope to the hopeless. Jesus is still on mission. And he's on mission through his church. His life is being lived in and through the lives of you and I and every one of his followers. It's all about Jesus. And he is real and he is at work. And when it's all about Jesus, you don't need anyone else or anything else to bring you satisfaction. He alone is worthy. And he alone is king of kings. And he alone can absolutely change your life in an incredible way for better. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, may you do what no human can do with words. May you do what no um, church can do through their gathering on a Sunday. May you bring about a desire for you and a delight in you in the hearts and minds of everyone here. May your Holy Spirit cause us and inspire us to surrender our life to you. And in your name we pray. Amen.